We're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verse 16, but we're going to do a little bit of exploring of the letter of Colossians as well whilst we're together. Has anybody, everybody got a Bible? There's still a Bible here. Well, as you notice on the notice sheets, the bulletin, that is not a particularly long passage we're looking at this morning, and so we haven't asked somebody to come up and read, so I shall read it now. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, which is on page 1184, if you have a church Bible, 1184, and I'm going to read from the New International Version. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Well, this morning, we're actually going to look at only half of that verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Well, you'll find some of the stuff that we'll cover this morning might be familiar with you if you were here last week and heard James um, speaking. But if there is any repetition, I don't apologize, because if there is, it's because it's important and really fundamental to our understanding of this verse. Well, a sermon, excuse me, sorry. Well, a sermon would normally finish on a point of application, you know, what to do after we've done a bit of teaching together of what we just heard. However, we're given the heads up on this one. We already know what the application is. We are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. That is what we should do. You know, I know soldiers are meant to follow orders without questioning, but it's no good for us to blindly obey. We need to know the answer to the whys. Why should I uh, follow this? Why should we do what we've been asked to? Well, it's especially important that we do this as we're looking at only one half of one verse. And if we zoom in too quickly, we can lose sight or distort the meaning of what this actually says. Though we shall return to verse 16 near the end, and unpack it a little bit more. Well, a key point, a key point to, in reading the Bible is to identify ourselves in the story or teaching. You know, there is a danger that we see whatever is being taught is, is for someone else and not for us. We say, well, it doesn't really apply to me, and we switch off, and we end up um, with feeling no necessity to either change or to listen Well, can we identify ourselves with the church at Colossae? That's a question to ask us. Especially after reading chapter 3. Have a glance down with it. Well, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Well, as we look around us, can we identify ourselves with the church at Colossae? Do we see sexual immorality? Do we see anger, malice, and slander? Well, let's be honest. I think it's quite hard to, to contemplate that we would admit to being anything near like that description in chapter 3. So is it relevant to us? Or to ask another question of ourselves, are we walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? Have we made it as a church? Well, I don't believe that anyone would have the audacity 
to claim that we have. We're not the finished article, and we probably have a long way to go. But we're not unique in admitting to this. You know, neither can any church in this country or world can even claim to be perfect, just as Christ wants us. And so for us to admit that we still need to change is to say that we're, there is still sin within and amongst us that we need to get rid of. To have made it would be to be a church without sin. Therefore, it is extremely relevant and absolutely necessary for our own sakes that we take notice of the warning of chapter 3. You know, whether these sins are expressed openly amongst us at Abbey or are hidden behind fake smiles, carried out in the privacy of our own homes, or even committed in our own hearts, it is a warning to us and an encouragement to take sin seriously. For Paul tells us in verse 6 of chapter 3, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now the good news is, is that if we're a follower of uh, Jesus, then we needn't worry about the God's wrath. If we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we can be assured that no matter what we do, we are safe. Because when the God the Father looks at me and us, he sees the sinless Saviour who has already received our punishment. And yet, if the Gospel, the good news speaks only about my or our standing before God, then what Paul is saying in the first half of chapter 3 about putting away sin from uh, the church and about ongoing sin is, is inconsequential. Why take the sin seriously? However, I just want to make my first point this morning. See, the gospel is more than grace to save. It's also about grace to transform. Paul begins his letter in chapter 1, verse 6. He says this about the gospel. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You know, the church at Colossae had understood God's grace to save, that the forgiveness of sins is a free gift from God. But it also says that since that day, when they put their faith in their Saviour, the Gospel had done something else. The Gospel has not been filed on a shelf. On a, just to bring it out every once and so often as an evangelistic tool. Instead, the life that the good news brought continues to bring life and transformation. There is good news that in Christ, we are not doomed to be stuck in a cycle of sinfulness. But instead, in him, we are to be transformed and to bear fruit. You see, the gospel means that we are not left or intended to remain bitter people, but forgiving. We are not left or intended to remain cold-hearted people, but loving we are not left or intended to remain selfish people, but generous. We are not left or intended to remain obnoxious people, but humble and kind. Now, this is God's plan and will. 
And it's also the prayer of Paul. Have a look at verse 10, chapter 1. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. This new life, a life, a walk worthy of the Lord, is not something secondary, but it's intrinsic to the gospel. Paul describes this walk as being mature in Christ, or maturing into Christ. And to this end, Paul himself has committed absolutely everything to it. Verse 29 of chapter 1, To this end I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. See, I don't think we should actually just ignore that. We should, shouldn't ignore how much the gospel has taken hold of Paul and to the extent that he worked for it. It's not for his sake, but for Jesus and his church, our church, for its transformation. And so our life together at Abbey should surely reflect that zeal that Paul has towards that mission of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, labouring and struggling with all God's energy that can work so powerfully in us here. You see, the gospel is more than grace to save. It's also about grace to transform. Well, if the gospel, therefore, is about transformation as well, then how does this change occur? And it brings me to the second point. That real change happens only after truly knowing who we are in Jesus. Real change only happens after truly knowing who we are in Jesus. Well, we're starting to hone in on our verse now. But we've, before we do, we should remind ourselves that it comes towards the end of that section, of, uh, which begins at the beginning of chapter 3. See how it does begin. Chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Now, he starts by stating the fact that they have been saved, that they have new life. They have been raised. He follows that by telling them what must happen now in light of their new identity in Christ. That is who they are, alive in Christ. Now, therefore, do this. Simply put, because we have been given new life, we are not to carry on sinning. We are told to put to death sin on our lives, verse, uh, verse 5 of chapter 3. We're also to put sin away, verse 8. We're also to put off our old self, our old sinful self, verse 9. And then in verse 12 and onwards, Paul presents the positive steps that we must take together. He says that we must put on compassion, kindness, humility. We're to put on gentleness, patience. We're to bear with one another. We've got to forgive one another whatever grievances that we have. And above all, we are to put on love. God desires transformation. He wants us to bear spiritual fruit. And these before us are the commands to do it. To put off, to put aside, to put to death. Well, let me ask how are we doing? If you really consider it, it's a hard question to answer. Are we winning the battle? 
Can people tell that we're not the person we were last week or even last year? Or are we still that person who is stubborn and easily angered? Are we still the person who excuses themselves with all kinds of reasons to avoid the inconvenience of helping someone in need? Have we even managed to get off the starting blocks? You know, we may have given our lives to Christ, but are we still the same as we were before? Has nothing changed? Or perhaps, have we been faking it? Have we said, I forgive you, to someone, but in our hearts we still harbor bitterness and condemnation? Have we appeared to act so compassionately? But if we're honest, we've only done that because we thought we felt we have to. I suppose that last question is the hardest one because I look amongst ourselves and I I see something which is not wholly awful. But have we been faking it? You know, it seems evident, but if we're brutally honest, it doesn't seem as straightforward or as easy to live out these commandments. Paul says this is what we must do. But sometimes it's quite hard. I would like to make another point within here. And that is, don't be religious then. Religion can't change you. And I'll I'll explain why I've said that. There's a problem at Colossae within the church, a problem which Paul explains to us about. He admonishes us about this. And and the word is asceticism. And you'll find back in chapter 2, have a look yourself. Essentially, it was to deny oneself You'll see how they, how they come under uh, verse 21, where they keep saying, do not handle, do not touch, a taste, do not touch. They're saying all these external commands to bring about change. I'm a, I'm a bit of a fan of Time Team, and, I'll, uh, and I particularly like the um, episodes where they actually dig out monasteries and things like that, especially the earliest ones. And they only just reminded me, because the early, uh, earliest monks were called ascetics. They denied themselves things, hoping to achieve a higher spirituality, a greater freedom and change and transformation in Christ. But there is a note in 23 to comment on that kind of change. You see, it's a self-made religion. It has the appearance of wisdom, but is totally useless in conquering sin. It says in 23, such regulations, that's the rules that they're putting in front of them. Indeed, have the appearance of wisdom not to do this and that with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Can you see where their hearts are? Self-imposed worship. False humility. Binding by rules and religion will not get you anywhere in transforming into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Giving up, is, uh, giving up smoking is the easiest thing in the world. I know because I've done it a thousand times. That was a quote from Mark Twain. It's true, isn't it? It rings true. We quit because we're told it's not good for you. The packages on cigarettes are quite graphic. 
And so you give yourself some rules of which to abide by. So you abide by those rules. But it is extremely hard because you still desire a cigarette. And the fifth rule is, I'm going to break the other four and I start smoking again. Religion is a list of do's and don'ts. Religion says that we are to submit to its rules. But the warning here, as Paul is admonishing us, he says it's shallow. It's fake. It's short-lived. Willpower will fail. You remain unchanged if you pursue that route. And ultimately you'll be disappointed. For no matter how hard you work, at abiding, uh, abiding by rules, no matter how far you go to demonstrate your devotion, the motivation behind change, our hearts remain untouched. The act of doing stuff does not cause your heart to change. So what then is the key to change? Well, I think far too quickly we can overlook the opening words of verse 12 of chapter 3. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself. Put on the clothes. The commands follow, you see. As God's chosen people, holy, set apart for him, and dearly loved, so dearly loved that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. You see, before we get to the commands, before we even get to verse 16, Paul describes the identity of those who can change, who can put on these new clothes. We cannot ever hope to have lasting deep change if we do not grasp the wonderful truth of the gospel, the mystery of that gospel that is Christ in us. That's our identity. By the grace of God, we are his people. The gospel tells us who we are in Christ. Well, firstly, Paul expresses who Jesus is in chapter 1. He is the one above everything. He is the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. He is the reconciler of all things. He is the conqueror over death. And then Paul, in Colossians alone, tells us that we are a people who have an assured hope for the future. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven. He says we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints of, the, of light. We are a people uh, transferred from darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are a people at peace with God. No more his enemies. That is who we are. That is who we are in Christ. That is our identity. This is the mystery, which is the life work of Paul to proclaim. You see, real change happens only after truly knowing who we are. A dearly loved, chosen people in Jesus. If you're still not sure, let's read together chapter 1. Verse 24 to the end. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. 
I have become its servant by the commission, of, uh, commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. And he goes on to explain what that is. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. The gospel, the mystery, is all about Jesus Christ. Paul's toil and struggle His suffering is to proclaim Jesus. For he knows that it's only Jesus can save and only Jesus can bring about true and lasting change in his people. If you're struggling with sin in your life, know that the solution does not lie in what you may try to do or not do, but it is found in the truth of all what it means to have Christ in you. What are then, therefore, the next steps for today, tomorrow, and indeed for the rest of our lives? What must we do in light of that glorious truth? We are to strive, to put the effort in. Paul commands us, again, to put on. That is not to fake it. That's religion. But instead to take hold of what has already been given to us. We are to seek a deeper knowledge of Christ. And be amazed and thankful what it truly means to be, uh, to have Christ in us, chosen, holy, and dearly loved. Only then, only then will the desire to put sin to death, to put off our old self, and to put on the virtues of a holy life that is fully pleasing to the Lord will come about. What must we do? We must allow as well. You see, the final two commands, to live a fruitful life, Pleasing to God are slightly different from the previous ones. So we're very close to verse 16 now. The ones that came before had that sense of striving. Something that requires one to be proactive. Paul says that we should be putting off and putting on. The last two, however, there's nothing extra we can do. But instead, Paul says for us to let things happen. You know, I'm not talking about passively sitting by, waiting for something magically to happen or to appear. But to allow, to create an environment in which things can change. Firstly, the first command was, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, verse 15. That peace of being reconciled to God must govern our desires and will. To know that we are no longer objects of God's wrath, And by knowing that, that should surpass all everything else and be supreme over all other competing desires and passions in our hearts. We've been forgiven. And secondly, and now we finally come to verse 16. And my final point, let the word of Christ dwell in us as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. I didn't make that one up, obviously. Do we want to change? 
Do we want to want to change? I sincerely hope we do. Paul accused the ascetics, the do this, don't do that brigade, with having lost its connection with the head, which is Christ. You know, to be a body without a head is not the best recipe for life, let alone transformation and growth. Is it not therefore essential that we remain connected to the head, Jesus Christ? And that's why Paul commands us, let the word of Christ dwell amongst us richly. We must, we absolutely must, let the word of Christ dwell in us. Change will not happen. The fruit-bearing gospel will not bear fruit if the word of Christ does not permeate into every part of our life here at Abbey. You see, there's a sense that we need to release the power of God's word amongst us to create that environment for it to flourish. You see, when speaking about the church in Corinth, Paul said that he had planted the seed, Apollos had watered it, but God had made it grow. And so we too must water it. The word will remain a dried seed husk unless it is watered. That is to teach and to speak about it. God will work. Therefore, shouldn't we be watering the seed all the more to let the word of Christ dwell richly among us at Abbey? Well, it does ask to dwell in us richly. And I make a point that the word you is not uh, primarily a command for the individual person. The you here is plural. You, the church. Paul is always commanding us as a collective. And this should come as no surprise, as firstly, the basis for our change is our identity in Christ. And our identity in Christ is always as a body, chosen ones, his church. And so this puts on a complete different complexion of what we should do. You see, this verse is not telling us to go home and read our Bibles a lot more, which is not a bad thing. But instead, the gospel truth must be like a permanent resident amongst us as a body. As I'm unable to move around my house without bumping into my kids or Juliet, so it should be with the gospel as church, but even more so. If we were to have a meeting, the word of Christ should be there. If we are to collect the projector, kids, equipment, roots boxes, admin boxes, and the like, the gospel is to be found there. If we are to gather on the Sunday, the good news should be there. If we are to meet one another for a coffee, the word of Christ should be there also. That is the sense of the word of Christ dwelling richly. It is to be abundant. We are to be saturated with it, allowing it to speak into every situation and circumstance. And you can see how necessary it is that the whole body is involved. It needs to be everybody's responsibility and joy. The second part of that verse, verse 16, shows that through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, we are to teach and admonish. Well, there's nothing more defining, is there, in defining a united collective than a congregation in song. Not one of us should feel that they're exempt 
from Paul's command in verse 16. We are his body. Every single one of us. So what can we expect? As we let the word of Christ dwell in our church, we will be changed. It is what Paul strives and toils, teaching Christ so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and be presented perfect in Christ. That's what we can expect. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's all of us, together. Well, Paul throughout his letter has been modelling the very thing that we should be doing in, uh, by letting the word of Christ dwell. He teaches us about who Christ is and who we are in him and who we are to be. So then let us create together as a body the environment and culture in which the word of Christ is spoken of daily and to every situation. We should not feel silly or embarrassed to be constantly talking about Jesus who has given us life and testifying to his greatness, love and sovereignty. Do not worry about being labelled as a bit of a Jesus fanatic. Do we love him? Are we thankful for what he has done in us and for us? Don't turn to this, but Timothy in his second letter says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with him, join with Paul, in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. That this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Look to every situation. Every op- as an opportunity to give praise and to teach, to talk about him, to apply the gospel truth in our lives together that we may meet, reach maturity and bear fruit. Not for your sake. Not for your sake alone, but for the sake of Jesus and his church, his body. That is his purpose for us. Well, the mini-series that we're doing is, Is Your Church Different? Well, we want to make Jesus known. That's our strap line. And so, letting the word of Christ dwell amongst us has to be a primary characteristic of our church. And not only does Paul's model uh, letter show us what to teach, he admonishes us too. Half the time, the word admonish is translated warn. And we've seen this already when he warns us about the religious brigade, their do's and their don'ts. We are to extol Christ, yes, but also to admonish one another with regarding the dangers that lead to losing connection with the head. Therefore, we must apply the same boldness in which we are to testify about the Lord in the correcting and warning amongst ourselves. And finally, we are to teach in all wisdom. As we embrace the word of Christ more, the greater we are able to teach and admonish in wisdom. 
you know, some of you may be the owners of that popular and very helpful book, The Message, which paraphrases the scriptures. But I think this time, when I had a look at it, it's got the sense wrong. It paraphrases wisdom as common sense. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. But then if you look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2, we, we see another um, definition of wisdom. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Of course, we shouldn't abandon common sense. However, we can easily apply common sense, but unless it has its roots firmly in the wisdom that comes from God, that is Jesus Christ, it may be common, but it may make no sense. See, I understand wisdom here, not to refer to the means by which we should teach the good news to one another, but instead that in Jesus Christ there is wisdom. Wisdom which shows us the way to make it through a fallen world together whilst living a life that is pleasing to our God. Is our church different? Well, let's together allow the word of Christ loose among us. Let's witness and see God's power to change and transform sinners like ourselves, who by any other wisdom or common sense should or would not be united together. And by our transformation, let us witness to those who do not believe in the greatness of our God. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. We just bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel, the gospel that proclaims that we are alive in Christ, that we are no longer facing any condemnation because Jesus took the punishment and took your wrath away from us. And Heavenly Father, let that truth and that newness of life take hold of our lives together as a body of in Abbey Church, that we may be excited and keen to proclaim the greatness of our Saviour amongst one another, that we may mature, that we may bear fruit, that we may grow into uh, a church which walks in a way which is pleasing to you. Heavenly Father, forgive us for when we don't do that. Help us be pr- uh, proud in our Saviour. Help us to be confident in him. Help us not to be ashamed in in speaking about him. But let him speak to us in every situation. For for the sake of your name and for the sake of your church, help us, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to stand to sing a final.